Welcome to the Kingsway Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed as you listen to this audio sermon streamed live from Melbourne, Australia. Kingsway Christian Fellowship is a family Bible-based non-denominational church preaching Jesus Christ based in Montana. Visit www.kingswaychristianfellowship.com. Now here's Elder Coleman Doyle. Let's open a word of prayer before we go to the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, this morning. We thank you for the day you've made. We thank you, Lord, for what's gone before and um, for what lays ahead, Lord. And uh, we know, Lord, that once, Lord, we walk with you, Lord, we do, we do not have anything to fear, Lord, that, that um, you'll lead us and you'll guide us. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you um, open our ears, Lord, our spiritual ears. Help us, Lord, to hear your word. Help me, Lord, to relay it, Lord. I'm just a, a vessel, Lord, and um, prone to error and... and uh, and I can get things wrong, I know that, Lord. So help me, Lord, to, to say things accurately this morning, Lord, and to present your word correctly, that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, what I wanted to speak about this morning is blessed are the poor in spirit. And I felt to preach on it. I wanted to pick a topic that um, has a lot of meat on it, plus... It also leads into the, um, the other Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, which is such a, a ripe and wonderful body of scripture to preach on. So if I get an opportunity to preach again, I'd like to go further into these Beatitudes. But this morning, just, just want to have a, a close look at blessed are the poor in spirit, being in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. And before we do that, before we read that scripture, just to set a little bit of context, we know that in uh, Matthew chapter 4, we have Jesus there in the prelude to his public ministry. And, uh, you know, we know there are several key things happen in chapter 4 of Matthew. We know that Jesus is tempted, that he's taken into the wilderness for 40 days. And this is straight after the, uh, the, his baptism in the Jordan by John, the, uh, the Baptist, who he heard mentioned already this morning. And here he overcomes Satan in the three main areas of temptation being the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these are the same things that we know that is the same areas, the same categories of temptation that we suffer as believers. But he sets example, an example for us there in that Satan's temptation, as I say, it presents in the same way now as it presented to Jesus. He resisted and he overcame it by the power of the word of God. And that's the passion for us also. So we take that out of chapter 4. We read also that he calls the apostles and um, he proceeds to go about uh, Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, performing miracles and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And we learn also that his fame spreads and he accumulates a, a, um, quite a large following. So we could read just a, a passage from chapter four just to, to um, capture that before we go on to the main theme of this morning. So in chapter 4, reading in verse 23, it says there, And Jesus went about all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went through all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And they were following him great multitudes of people from Galilee, 
from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. So if you looked at a map, that's a big catchment area. And many, many people came from many different places to hear um, this, what would have to be them at that time an amazing man, an amazing teacher, doing amazing things. So just to go on then, we, we come then to what's called a Sermon on the Mount. And um, it opens in chapter 5. We could just read verse 1 and 2. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, and we could pause there. So as we've seen in the previous chapter, great multitudes from different regions were following Jesus. Now we know that Jesus considered the multitudes as lost and without a shepherd. So this was a perfect moment to announce the kingdom. Now I don't think Jesus wanted to avoid people when he went up into a mountain. You know, this mountain, and the mountain in question, just as a matter of interest, it's believed to be near Capernaum, but uh, its exact location we can't be certain of. Uh, that's quite a common. There's a lot of things we can't be certain of in the Bible. If you look at Mount Sinai, there's different beliefs as to which Mount Sinai. There's a Mount Sinai in the Arabian Peninsula. There's a Mount Sinai on the other side of the sea. So there are many areas that we cannot be 100% certain on. But we know when we see the Lord one day, many of these questions, if not all, will be answered. So, so we have to respect some of those things. And as we've heard it said many times before, where the Bible is silent, we remain silent. And where it speaks, we speak. So... So we don't know exactly where this mountain was. Um, now like the scene of the miracle of the loaves and fishes, it was probably a location that was suited to a large public gathering. Uh, maybe it was a natural amphitheater, we could speculate. Now in scripture, many things happen on mountains in the Bible. We know that in Genesis that the, the, uh, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. We know that Abraham, again we heard this this morning in the communion message, was asked to sacrifice Isaac, and that was on the mountain of Moriah. Sinai, we just mentioned, Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Where exactly Mount Sinai was, I'm not sure, but he received them there. When the people entered the Promised Land, there were two mountains that were brought to the fore, one being Mount Gerizim, and on that mountain, mountain blessings were pronounced. And on the opposite mountain, which was Mount Ebal, curses were pronounced. Jesus himself was crucified on the Mount of Calvary. Jesus ascends from a mountain. And here we have, as we go into this chapter, the first recorded blessings from the New Testament, and they're given on a mountain. Now we learn further in Matthew 7.28 at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount that um, it says there the people were astonished. So you can infer from that that it wasn't just the disciples, that it was a large group of people and because we know from the previous chapter so many came to hear and follow, it was presumably a very large gathering of people. Now Jesus, he didn't have one set of teachings for the elite and another for a common man. But the gospel, it's for, it's for all mankind. It's the same gospel for whether you're rich or poor, male, female, uh, adult or child. And, um, you know, this hasn't changed today. Now we know, I come from a Catholic background, I know a little bit about the Catholic, the, the history of the Catholic Church. I know for many centuries they tried to suppress the Bible because to them it was too dangerous in the hands of ordinary man or common man. You know, people were punished or died 
Now, we have seen a list there earlier on of countries where persecution is rife. And in North Korea, for example, which is number one on that list, if you had a Bible, it's most likely you'd be put to death. Or maybe secondarily, you'd end up in prison. And further and more than that, all of your family and all of their relations would probably end up in prison as well. So, you know, that sort of persecution is real. And, um, you know, something we should be aware of. And as, as Sean said this morning, we should keep those situations in prayer. And I hope one day, if we ever have to face that, that we too could stand and, and be, be counted. Now, he did not reside in a monastery, but he walked about in the world of that day. <coughs> and we see there in the scripture, he takes a seat of position. So he takes a seat of position of a teacher. Now, here we have God's word and teaching. It's direct from the Son. And it's not via an Old Testament prophet like Samuel or Isaiah, as was to that time. And, um, you know, overall, the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the longest and most significant passage of te the teachings of Jesus. And if you look in your Bible, it's always very easy to find because it's almost three chapters of complete red text in the Red Letter Bible. It's, it's all of the teachings or all of the words of Jesus. Now, it says there in the second verse, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. Now, I can picture in my mind's eye Jesus, this individual, the suffering servant, and the Lamb of God, teaching with the greatest of authority. And I could see in my mind's eye the audience hanging on to every single word. And there's a verse in Psalm 45, verse 2. It says, There thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God had blessed thee forever. So the words that come out of Jesus' lips, they were full of grace and they were powerful and they would have cut to the, the very uh, the heart of people and, and you know, no man could speak like he spoke. And uh, you know, it would have been amazing to be there. But we, we have his word, we have a record. So we are blessed and, and uh, you know, it's a wonderful thing. And we can think about today, we have a, a wonderful technical team over there doing a lot of great work. No amplification systems, no technology of such in those days. You know, you can think of great evangelists like Wesley, who spoke to, to, to uh, multitudes of thousands in like manner, and uh, not needing amplification, but they're most effective, and the record records that. Now, this opening period of the ministry, earthly ministry of Jesus, it drew the attention of multitudes, as we found uh, out already, and he amassed a great following. And we find, of course, later on, in the Gospels that this was to change, and it changed drastically just coming up to the time of Calvary and his crucifixion. And the sermon that he preached, this Sermon on the Mount, it's a, it's a message that has long been recognized as the sum of Jesus, or anyone else for that matter, else's ethical teaching. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us effectively how to live as Christians. So we have Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one present at the creation, the Redeemer who will lay down his life in years following this for a lost world, and the judge who is to, in the time to come, and the greatest of teacher. That's the one who's speaking when we read these, these verses. So it's, it's quite actually, when you think about it in that manner, it's quite um, sobering and, and enlightening. I've heard people say that the sermon is an ideal only, and that nobody can attain it. Uh, I don't believe that, as a, and I believe that as, as a born-again believer, 
You can attain to these teachings. You can experience these Beatitudes, which we're going to start to look at this morning. If we're obedient and we walk in the Spirit, all these things are possible. Now, nowadays, you can go to a bookshop and you can find hundreds of publications on all the different ologies and office. You can have philosophy and psychology. And you'll even find some of these books, unfortunately, in Christian bookstores. You can listen to Dr. Phil on TV. You can look at all these motivational speakers on the internet. Now, although they all may have some good points and some good things to say, and little snippets of wisdom, the advice they give it pales way into significance in comparison to what Jesus has to say in chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. Now, many non-Christians, just to add to the context here, have been in awe of the Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi was one example. Gandhi um, was quite intrigued and fascinated by, by these writings and by Jesus himself. But he did say that he loved the Christ, he loved the Christian gospel, but he couldn't um, stand Christians, as it were. And, um, you know, perhaps that was tainted by his experience of British imperial rule, but to me that's a sad thing to hear because, you know, I, I've experienced many bad things in life, but I know that when I stand before God and anyone here, any individual, that you can bring all of the excuses you like, you can claim all of the hard doings, you can talk about all of the things you suffered and the wrongs that were done to you, but they're not an excuse for not accepting the gospel, so, so we can't, you know, I mean, even my own, my own brother, you know, at one time he was pointing out to me, and he was probably correct, about money preachers, and he's talking about one particular money preacher who I won't name, and he could say, you can see he's a con man. And I said, well, I have to agree with you. But I says, that won't be your excuse when you stand before the Lord. You know, you can't use that excuse. So these things are sad, but, you know, we have to put them to one side. And, uh, you know, we all stand before the Lord with an individual account to give. And we're all unique in that sense that we have to make our own decision in eternity. Now, we could add to that. There's a couple of well-known characters in history, Frederick Engels and Karl Marx. They produced the Communist Manifesto. They outlined their plan for a new world order. We can go back further in history and you can look at King John and he, he agreed to the, the signing of the Magna Carta, which became the forerunner of what we know as, as um, British common law. You could go over many examples of great documents that have um, arisen and been produced in society. But the Sermon on the Mount... That's above all these. This is the declaration of the kingdom of God. Now the Jews, sorry, I have to, I'm getting dry, I have to take a little drink. The Jews of that day, they had a different idea about the kingdom. They expected the Messiah to, that they expected the Messiah to introduce. Now Jesus didn't talk about a great political change or upheaval. He wasn't talking about the casting out of Roman imperial rule. His kingdom, as we know, is not of this world. Instead, Jesus addresses the spiritual kingdom of God, outworking in the life of the believer. And this great message tells us how we can live when Jesus is our Lord. Perhaps when thinking about the expectations of Israel then, you could say there are parallels now to... to um, what we call Kingdom Now Theology. And I've had exposure to the Kingdom Now Theology. When I heard it, it didn't, it didn't sit right with me. 
And it indirectly caused me to leave the church, both of us actually generally myself, to leave the church we were in because it didn't seem to set well with Scripture. And that was the idea that, you know, the church as we know it has to overtake or take over the institutions of this world. You know, there's five pillars of institutions that are mentioned. I won't go into detail, but... And it has to actually effectively conquer this earthly system before Jesus can come back and reign. And uh, we, we know this is not, not, not true, and perhaps that's something akin to what the Israel of the time thought, that uh, you know, their Messiah was a different Messiah. It was a Messiah who was going to rail, reign and rule and bring back glory days for Israel. The Sermon on the Mount, again, just by way, way of introduction, it's not um, directly dealing with salvation, although the, the Beatitude which we're looking at this morning, blessed are the poor in spirit, it is a pre-exit or is it a, a, an element of true salvation. For the believer this morning, or for the disciple, or for the potential disciple, the ethics and the principles of Christian living are outlined. Now you'll find if you look in the Gospel of Luke, similar teaching is given by, by Jesus immediately after the twelve are chosen. It's not exactly the same account, but it's very, very similar. You know, it's worth noting that um, in reading the commentary on this, it says that the word tosh that's used here, it's in the um, imperfect tense, which means that it's, there's a continual action associated with it. So you could say that the, um, the, re the real interpretation is this is what he used to teach. So I, I could deduce from that that this sermon or the, con or the body of the sermon was preached more than once to different groups of people in that time. So this was a, a whole block of teaching that was central to what Jesus had to say as part of his, his ministry here on earth. Now the, the Sermon on the Mount it had a significant impact on the early church. The early Christians, they make constant, constant reference to it in church history, and there's many, many examples we could look to in church history of uh, great individuals and, and martyrs and all whose lives you know, were deeply impacted by, by this, this preaching and teaching. So this leads us now just to the topic of the Beatitudes, and um, we only want to cover one of them this morning, but the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 it's known as the Beatitudes. And um, they were given, as we know, you know, early in the ministry of Jesus, perhaps in the first one and a half years. And the blessings are these Beatitudes, you know, they're the foundation of um, happiness, happiness interpreted in the Christian context, happiness of, in the Lord and, and a joyful walk in the Lord. They're a description of every true Christian and it's, it's not a case that, that uh, some Christians would have these and others wouldn't. It's, or they, they're, they're gifts of uh, grace and they're not personality traits or tendencies or qualities. These are not the fruit of the Spirit that we see list, listed in Galatians 5. And they're not the gifts of the Spirit we see listed in 1 Corinthians 12. So the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer develops these Beatitudes. And we as Christians, we don't major in one to the exclusion of another beatitude. And we, we should desire these beatitudes. And I would just add this morning that, you know, someone who would claim to be a Christian, but who displays none of these or desires to display none of these beatitudes, he's not walking as he should walk. 
So let's um, just move on now and let's talk about the poverty in the spirit, which is what's um, mentioned in verse 3 here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, this is the time of year, and it's just gone by in the last couple of weeks, where people, they want to have a reset, and they want to express various resolutions. You know, have you ever heard anyone say for the New Year's resolution that I desire to be poor in spirit? And you can see that it goes against normal human nature. But in actual fact, this first step is that one that must be taken if you want your life in Christ to change. And it's the root of real change and personal transformation. And all of us here this morning, if we're honest, deep down, we, we all want to change in some area or some manner or another. I don't think any of us are happy exactly as we are. We all want to change. We all, and we all want to walk closer to the Lord or we want to improve in various areas or do things better, not sin in certain areas, etc. And we find as we look through the eight Beatitudes that they all pronounce a condition first and then they're followed by a promise. And uh, again, the word beatitude, it's interesting if you look at the, the Latin, it comes from the word beatus and that means happy. Now if you ask a random group of people this morning, what will make them happy? You might get various different answers. One might say a better job, another might say more money, someone might say a husband or a wife, a child, some may want more recognition, some may want to retire and so on. But how can you be happy and poor in spirit at the same time? So we should not confuse happiness you know, with a, an idyllic life or you know, where there's no problems, but it's the joy of the Lord and um, the happiness that comes from a growing relationship with him that we're talking about here. And, uh, you know, as I just mentioned already, we, we need this first beatitude. We really need to, um, to reach this or qualify this to be able to progress and to, to work through the other beatitudes that are mentioned in the following verses. Now, just again, by way of background reading, Spurgeon has something to say, and I like what he had to say. He said that the last word of the Old Testament in Malachi, if you want, you can look at that in your outside of the sermon, is the pronouncement of a curse. And here we have the very first recorded New Testament sermon of Jesus, and it starts with a blessing. And in between, of course, we have 400 years of silence or the intertestamental period. So just an interesting comment to make there. Misunderstanding the words of Jesus. And um, I think this passage can be misunderstood quite easily if we're not careful. So there's no particular righteousness that comes with being poor. Neither is there any particular sinfulness that comes with being rich. And it would be wrong to assume that rich people are lesser in God's eyes. Last week, Pastor Werner, he um, spoke about Job. He was a very, very wealthy man. But he was also a man that was poor in spirit and knowing well his position and his standing in relationship to God. And when he had a revelation of the creation and a glimpse of God's might, and we can read what he said in Job uh, 42, verse 5. And I think Werner may have read this last week. It says there, I've heard thee by the hearing of, of the ear, but now mine eyes see thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent and dust and ashes. I would say that was a spirit of a, a mournful spirit there that, that was demonstrated. 
So it's hard to compare ourselves to other people if we look at our own insignificance compared to, compared to Almighty God, as Job had to do. So um, something to think about, perhaps we can check ourselves on that before we look too closely at others. Just compare ourselves and our own standing to God and see how much we pale into the insignificance when we do that. Could be easier for a poor person to be saved because they're not preoccupied with gaining and holding on to riches. You know, it does say it's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And money itself, of course, we know is neutral. In the same sense we could say how many people would pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread if they're totally self-sufficient and not lacking in anything. There's nothing really to drive them to their knees or to drive them to prayer. You know, it's possible to become soft in the Christian walk if we get things too easy. And of course, we could quote Matthew 19, verse 24, and it says, And again, I say unto you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And one thing we can say for certain is that there will be both rich and poor in hell one day. And, uh, you know, it's just as much possible for a poor person and for a rich person to reject the gospel. And the consequences and the outcomes are the same. It's also possible for believers to have false modesty and to false self-abasement to be, you know, putting themselves down in a manner where it's, it's not really truthful, it's just trying to gain attention. And that could be misinterpreted as being poor in spirit. So we're not called to live like John the Baptist, again, who's mentioned this morning, or hermits in a monastery. And, uh, but a different calling. We're called to be salt and light in this world and in society today. And, um, you know, it's an interesting thing and it's a little bit of a, a twisted statement, but it's true. We have to be careful not to be proud in our humility. In our humility. That seems a contradiction, but it, it is possible. It's possible to have pride in your humility. It's a funny thing, but it's, uh, it's interesting to dwell on. So Jesus, he's not talking about self-condemnation or loathing of ourselves. And we've got to remember that we have significance and we do have value because we've been purchased at the greatest and highest of prices, which we, we hear about every Sunday when we come around the table of the Lord. And every one of us possesses the imagio Deo. All men are made in the likeness of God and have the image of God and we're his image bearers. So, so there is a value and there's even value in the lost. They're all potential um, Christians and potential, potential to be saved. So we have to bear that in mind. And a true Christian has the victory and has every reason to be joyous and uppish despite his or her circumstances. And, um, you know, that, that can be difficult. I know that. And everything I say this morning, by the way, this is for me. I'm not, um, I haven't overcome significantly in all of these areas and I want to advance in them. So I'm preaching to myself as well as everybody else this morning. This touches me very, very much. Now, understanding what Jesus means by poor in spirit. And uh, I guess this is important that we understand what exactly he's getting at here. So when we consider poor in spirit, it can be in the context of both a believer or an unbeliever. Obviously in talking to the disciples, Jesus was talking to believers. 
In talking to the greater multitudes, there would be many unbelievers among them. For an unbeliever, it's that realization that he or she is sinful. And we all had this um, when that moment came in our lives when we were confronted by our sin and the gospel penetrated our hearts. You know, that we were rebellious, lost, couldn't do anything that would earn us God's favor, that you know, we, he or she, we had to rely only on what the Lord had done for our salvation. Nothing we could do could bring about our salvation or, or um, budge us in that direction. You know, it was all of the Lord. Furthermore, he or she or we realized that at that time we were deserving of no favor but of judgment and condemnation. And that's something that we touch on each Sunday as well when we come around the table. We are sinners saved by grace. And the only difference between us and those that are lost is the grace of God. And it's outworking in our life and that we, we just um, responded to that call. And uh, that imposes humility on us just in thinking about things in that context. The poor in spirit, they realize their own sinfulness and need for God's grace. And this awareness requires the leading of God. We know that no one comes except they are drawn. So there's a two-way interaction going on here. It's, it's mysterious to me. We um, can't save ourselves in our own right, yet there's a duty on us. We have to respond. So there's a two-way transaction takes place there, and we have to do our bit. And we have the ability, and we have the choice. We can reject, and we bear the consequences as a result. So in order to progress through the Beatitudes, you must be poor in spirit first. So we've already said that. And it's interesting that the spirit that's in that verse there, verse 3, it's the lowercase. So we're talking about the human spirit. Yeah, we know that we created body, soul, and spirit. That's the way God has made us. We're triune. We reflect God's triune creation in that manner, or triune um, uh, reality in that manner. We have a physical body this morning, and it's, you know, it's, for some of us, it's in better shape than others. But that body is how we relate to the physical world. We have a soul or a personality which God has given us that is unique in how we relate to others. And we have a spirit, a spirit to contact and receive God who is spirit, spirit with capital S this time. So we're talking about, really here about the debt, debt to self. And, you know, we can put categories in that. We're talking about selfish pride, self-assertiveness, selfish desires, arrogance, gloating at others, misfortune, the need for man's approval, you know, this inordinate desire for admiration, all of those things that we're honest, we all have in us this morning that we have to put down, that we have to put to death daily. Now, we tend to see ourselves inflated because of our pride, and that pride is real in us. It's part of the fall, came with the fall. And, you know, if you want to, to see an example of that, we can look at Revelations 3, verse 15. Again, listen to the words of Jesus. And it says there, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased in goods and I have need of nothing. And you don't know or knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You know, many would say we're in the Laodicean church age. 
And that's perhaps you know, typical of the Western church. That's not a good way to be. And it's um, you know, something that disgusts Jesus. He uses very strong words. He says he'd spew us out. And, you know, terrible thing to reach that position where we think we have it all and, you know, we don't need the Lord or we don't need any more. You know, in, in that same light, we could say that Jesus, he may see us very, very differently than we see ourselves. Now, you could say something again, it's a bit of a, a play on words, but it's true that we could say the, the Laodicea in church there, it's poor in poverty of spirit. Now, there's some examples in scripture we can use to illustrate both sides of the equation here. Let's look at Luke 18, verse 13. And we'll all, we know these passages very, very well. Verse 13, it says there, And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Or we could go to Isaiah 6, verse 5. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, Isaiah, the Prince of Prophets, a mighty man of God. If he can say that, what can we say this morning? Or the great apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, in Philippians 3, verse 8. We could read there. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. That's poverty in spirit. And we can compare them to the opposite. Again, we can go back to Luke 18, same chapter, and have a look at um, this time at verse 11. The Pharisee, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. A couple of more, Daniel 4, verse 30. The king spake and said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom? by the might of my power and for the honour of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And there was one other kid that uh, after I made my notes that, that came down to mind and it's a, one again you can picture in your mind, a very, very evocative one. Herod, when he was speaking to the people and it's in Acts and the people were in a wonder and amazement and saying, the voice of a God and not of a man. He didn't correct it, and it says that he was struck down on a spot and consumed by worms. So, so there's some examples of, of uh, not being poor in spirit. So poverty of spirit, it's not something that we attain. It's not like a milestone, you reach it once. It's, it's a lifelong pursuit. And you know, we've, we never arrive, we haven't arrived on that day we see Jesus face to face. You know, if we reach a place where we think we have it all covered, or we've been perfected. Then I'd say we're in a place of arrogance and pride. And you know, that's why having a teachable spirit, and we should all have teachable spirits, we should all be correctable. 
It's so important. It's again, it's a dangerous place to, to think that we know it all and to, to be beyond correction or to, to think that we have it all and have all the answers. And, and uh, no man here this morning knows the scriptures inside out and gets it all correct. And I'm included in that. So we're exposed to the world and its influences while we're here. You know, a good daily prayer would be, Lord, help me empty myself of everything that's an obstacle to me being able to receive from you. It'd be a good prayer for me to pray daily. You know, that um, before we're consumed and filled up with issues and problems and attitudes and whatever, Lord, fill me first and fill me full of your good things. In the parable of the sower and the seed, it says that some fell by the wayside. And we have that picture of plants that were overcome by thorns and weeds, symbolizing the, the cares and the issues of the world. And you know, if our hands and our hearts are full and cluttered up, then we can't receive the good things that the Lord, the God, has to offer us. What does being poor in the spirit look like? You know, there's got to be some signs and indications that, um, you know, that we can judge ourselves and uh, know that we're poor in the spirit or perhaps, you know, looking at others, judging in the correct sense, of course. So in order to be poor in spirit, it's important to know what, it's, what it looks like. And, you know, there's some indications. First thing, and this, this is by no means exhaustive, that the poor in spirit, they're obedient. Again, let's have a look at another scripture. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. I've been reading through the book of Samuel for the last uh, month or so. And it's, it's quite a lot going on in there. But it says there in um, chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel here talking to Saul, who was disobedient. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as, as if the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So it's important that um, obedience is very much part of, of being poor in spirit. We mentioned humility this morning. Another um, indication or a good sign would be that we or they don't put themselves above others or set, set ourselves above others. So a key part of humility is how we relate to others. You know, in a Christian dealing with others, a Christian's dealing with others, you know, should reflect a spirit that doesn't strive to put us out first or, you know, make us seem best in a situation. We go back to the Gospel of Luke again this morning and um, jump to the following chapter, 14. In 14 verse 8 to 11, we have the scene here from the supper. It's a parable parable of a supper and it says there and um, excuse my reading of the old King James English but it says there when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding sit not thou down in the highest room lest a more honourable man than thou be bidden of him and he that bade thee and him come and say to thee give this man place and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room so having to be correct is not nice is it but when thou art bidden Go and sit down in the lowest room, and when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself 
shall be exalted. So the last verse there, it's a key to the kingdom, isn't it? Philippians 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. So it's a bad thing to get off, or a bad start to get off to if you think you're better than somebody. Or, um, you know, no matter what situation that person's in or what they've done or how they're behaving, we shouldn't think like that. Another sign is they, they can repent. They have the ability to repent. Now, in reading 1 Samuel, as I just mentioned, um, David's spoken of a lot in Samuel. And, you know, it quite amazes me how much David sinned. It wasn't just that he sinned with Bathsheba and, and um, sent a man to his death. You know, if you look about it, he actually, you know, just a brief summary, he went about killing people. He plundered villages. He killed women and children. He was a traitor to his own country. You know, he did um, lots of things. But why is he a man after God's own heart? Because, you know, we can read Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4. And uh, I think we sung about some of this this morning. Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness and according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done thus evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. When David was convicted, he was always ready to acknowledge his sin and repent. And that's the difference. So we're poor in spirit. When we're wrong, you know, we'll go and we admit we're wrong. Not something I always do, but we should do it. We should, when we're wrong, go and, and um, repent where we need to repent and put things right. You know, the Bible says we should do it before the sun goes down. You know, when these are right in the believer's life, then they can mourn. We can go on to verse 4 that's of that passage then. The blessed are those who mourn. Now what's the promise? I said earlier on that you know, there's a promise given in each of these um, verses. The promise is for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's a bit paradoxical that you have to empty yourself completely and leave nothing. And in return you receive everything. So we could ask a couple of questions. We could say is the reward for poor in spirit, is there some future kingdom like in the millennium or later on in eternity. And there's truth in both those statements. There is a kingdom to come. But it's also realized now because Jesus is reigning presently in the heart of the true believer. Jesus is reigning in all of our hearts here this morning who profess him as Lord and Savior. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing and a wonderful thing. You know, and again, if you consider just the tense in the verse, for there is, is the kingdom of heaven, it's present tense, it's not pointing to something in the future, not shall or could or, you know, will be. It's present, it's now. So a question again, do you want to be ruled by Christ? So if you confess Jesus Lord, as your Lord, Saviour and King, because we know he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you are a subject of his kingdom. And there's a, a nice verse in Luke 12, verse 32. It says, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know, I just stopped and I thought about that. That's an amazing scripture in itself. We don't have to stress or strive. He wants to bless. The Lord wants to bless us this morning. 
You know, true, he has to correct us from time to time. He has to pull the rug from under our feet and um, sort us out. But he wants to bless us. And he wants to give us the kingdom. In fact, he says, we have the kingdom. And, uh, you know, it's in us now. And it'll be realized in, in, a, in a fuller sense when we see him face to face. You know, they're wonderful things to, to uh, meditate on. And then we come to a conclusion. And I just um, wrote a few um, lines here. And some of these things may, uh, you may identify with this morning. Obey God first. Yours is the kingdom. Strive for poverty of spirit. Yours is the kingdom. When the world around you is in turmoil, there's going to be some here this morning who are in turmoil. There's some here this morning who are sad. Some who are suffering. Yours this morning is the kingdom. When you're discouraged, there's some here this morning who are discouraged. Yours is the kingdom. When you're persecuted, there may be some here this morning who are the butt of jokes, maybe soft persecution, maybe harder persecution. You know, you may be rejected. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And if you read further on in this, this passage, you'll find that as you fulfill and achieve the seven Beatitudes, that the last Beatitude is a promise of persecution. Blessed are those that are persecuted. Yours is the kingdom. When you fall, many of us here this morning, perhaps we've fallen on the way into church, fallen yesterday, we'll fall today. Repent and be restored. Yours is the kingdom. And um, a couple more scriptures. There's many, many scriptures you could actually use this morning. We use this one a lot. Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's talking there about a, a different life. Life in the faith of the Son of God. 1 Timothy 6 verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And just by way of illustration, I'll close again with Spurgeon. And uh, I like this, just a little um, thing just to dwell upon and to, to uh, put a picture in your mind. Spurgeon says here, I've seen the Christian man in the depths of poverty when he lived from hand to mouth and scarcely knew where he should find the next meal, still with his mind unruffled, calm and quiet. If he had been as rich as an Indian prince, yet could he not have had less care if he had been told that his bread should always come to his door and the stream which ran hard by should never dry? If he had been quite sure that ravens would bring him bread and meat in the morning and again in the evening, he would not have been one whit more calm. There is his neighbour on the other side of the street, not half so poor, but wearied from morning till night, working his fingers to the bone, bring himself to the grave with anxiety. Let's labour for the things this morning that are of value, not the things that are going to pass. And, you know, we can think about the scripture in Matthew about laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, not those things that are corruptible and they're going to pass away anyway. Lord bless you all, one and all this morning, and, um, and bless you all in the week ahead. Amen. Praise the Lord.